welcome to How You Slice It. Today's guest spent five years as a one-man team working on the line at Pauly G's, which is a world-famous pizza shop in Brooklyn. And at the line here at the pizza shop, he was bottling and testing the recipe for this product that ended up really taking the pizza industry by storm, at, at least in the U.S., Mike's Hot Honey. Everything changed when, uh, when he got on the shelves of Whole Foods. And I'd love to learn more about that. And uh, on that journey, met his business partner and found a honey producer in upstate New York. And so the week's guest is the one and only Mike Kurtz, the founder of Mike's Hot Honey, a product I use religiously with every single uh, pizza order that I make. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Excited to uh, to learn more about your story and, and where you're taking Mike's Hot Honey. It's a pleasure to be here, Alir. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, I mean, let's let's go back to the uh, to the founding story. Why honey? Have you always been a honey person? Are you surrounded by bees? What's what's going on? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I actually came into the honey business by way of pizza. So to take it back to the beginning, um, my dad, uh, during the Vietnam War, he was being drafted to fight in the war. And he was opposed to the war and found out that you could fulfill your civil service by joining the Peace Corps. So he joined the Peace Corps. And in 1964, he was stationed in Brazil. And um, a couple of years later, he met my mom in Brazil. And they're both American, not Brazilians, but spent time there, came back to the States, had, had me and my sister. But I grew up in a house where um, you know, I was exposed to a lot of Brazilian music. I heard the language. And uh, when I was in college, I started studying Portuguese. And my junior year of college, I went abroad, was a foreign exchange student at a Brazilian university in, in Bahia in northeastern Brazil. And so I was there studying Portuguese. And on a weekend trip, I went to a national park that's in the interior of the state of Bahia, and was hiking on this trail for about four days with um, some friends. And on the last day of our hike, we descended into this little valley and found this, this pizzeria. And on the tables at this little pizzeria, they had jars of honey with chili peppers for drizzling on the pizza. And, you know, I've always been a pizza lover since I was a little kid. My best friend's family growing up had a, had a pizzeria. So I, you know, like many Children loved pizza growing up and um, always loved spicy food. So when I tasted the honey with the chili peppers on pizza and sort of intersection of all those different flavors together, it really blew my mind. And I just couldn't shake the memory of that. So um, I got back to the States a year later and started experimenting with honey chili pepper infusions in my college apartment, my senior year of college. And that wow. was that was how Mike's Out Honey was created. That's incredible. And this is a Reoccurring theme, I was having a conversation with Brian Levine, who leads our supplies business, and one of his favorite customers is a Brazilian pizza shop owner. And by the way, the, the, the theme of the pizza shop here in the U.S. is a Brazilian pizza theme. And this operator is really challenging Brian on this idea that the best pizza is actually in Brazil, and that Brazil has this <laughs> incredible pizza scene. I'm deviating a little bit. We'll get back to Mike's Hot Honey, but what is the scene of, of pizza like in Brazil? Well, I mean, it really varies from region to region. Brazil is such a, a huge country. Mm. But, um, you know, in Sao Paulo specifically, there's a really large number of, of Italian immigrants. Um, so Sao Paulo has a lot of Italian food, a lot of pizzerias. Most of the time that I spend in Brazil is in the Northeast. 
So it doesn't have quite the same pizza culture as Sao Paulo, but um, Marcelo, who's our design manager here at Mike's Out Honey is from Sao Paulo. And I've heard heard him make the case several times <laughs> that he believes the pizza in Brazil is better than the United States. Now, I think that is very much a subjective thing, but um, you don't see a lot of pizza by the slice there, but you see more Neapolitan style or down there, they call it Forno Alenia, where mm-hmm. it's, you know, like wood fired pizza. You do see some unique toppings. Like uh, I've seen them put ovo egg on pizza. There's a cheese down there called Catupiri, which is like a, kind of like this really gooey farmer's cheese and in general like brazilians i i see them putting like a heavy amount of toppings on pizza so it's like usually a little bit heavier than the way most pizzas are topped in the states and the other cool thing that they do down there which i've yet to see in the states and i would actually love to see this here have you been to like a brazilian steakhouse where they have the the card on the table and it's green for go and red for stop. And they circulate with, you know, steaks and they come by the table and just cut you off different pieces of, yep. of different cuts of meat. It's called the Hodizio, but they have the same thing for pizza. So they have pizza Hodizios where you sit down, you sign up for the Hodizio, your table opts in for the Hodizio and the servers circulate with different pizzas and they'll come by with, you know, pizza with, you know, say it's a pepperoni pie and everybody grabs a slice of that. And they come by with, you know, like uh, a catupiri calabresa pie and grab a slice of that. And so it's a nice way to taste a bunch of different pizzas without having to like just stick to one thing. So it's actually, it's a cool format. And I've only seen that in Brazil, but I think that sort of came out of the Brazilian steakhouse culture. It's an amazing format, tasting a number of different slices in one sitting and not just being you know, married to the one that you purchased. It's also cool if you're there with just like yourself or a couple people, because you can, instead of being stuck eating one pie, you can have a bunch of different small pieces of different pies. Amazing. I, I think uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident someone, some great operator to listening right now will take that and run with it. I hope so. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. And then, you know, is hot honey unique to Brazil? As you got into the to the industry, have you sort of come across other similar ideas or similar products globally? So hot honey is not a thing in Brazil. It's not common in Brazil. It's not really a Brazilian thing. The, the owner of the pizzeria that where I first discovered the honey that was sort of the inspiration for my product, he was from Switzerland. So not Brazilian. It's not something you see in Brazilian pizzerias. I think like since the, the product has been popularized, here and see more and more pizzerias picking up. Um, there's been lots of other products who have, who've launched in the category, but yeah, not really like a Brazilian thing specifically. Got it. And so, you know, you, lo- you launched this product, you're kind of testing it in your apartment. I'm sure you're trying plenty of it. And so what, what happens next? How do you go from that to, you know, at least getting it in front of some customers? Yeah. So I started experimenting with honey chili pepper infusions my senior year of college. I was making it in my college apartment. Um, I kind of landed on the the infusion technique and the chili pepper and the varietal honey that I liked. I called it Mike's Hot Honey. And that's just what it was called. My friends asked me what it was. I said, it's Mike's Hot Honey. So it had a name. Product is actually, if you just look at like the name and that actual thing, but prior to all the branding and packaging and everything, it's now 18 years old. So I've, I've got a a full grown adult. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I always called it Mike's Hot Honey from day one, but it was just a hobby that I used to make for really just for myself, for use on pizza. I would give it out to friends and family around the holidays occasionally, but it was really just something I made at home. I uh, moved to New York. I got a job at a record label 
that I had applied for. They called me the day of my college graduation, morning of my college graduation, told me I had the job and they needed me to move there in two weeks. So right after my college graduation, I moved to Queens and um, started working um, at a record label on on Lafayette, just a couple blocks south of Astor Place in the East Village and um, started my career in the music business. And I used to make the honey and I bring it in like we had a bottle in our break room at the (laughs) record label I worked. And so like friends and colleagues knew about it, but it wasn't like it really wasn't something I I made at any sort of scale. But my obsession with pizza over time just grew and grew. And I started making lots of pizza at home and, you know, trying different techniques like a lot of home pizza cooks are trying to do to tweak out their oven to make it burn at a higher temperature and, you know, baking stones and baking steel and different flours. And I used to read the Slice blog, which was part of Serious Eats back in the day. And that was like a place where the pizza community all sort of congregated. Adam. Yeah. Yep. Adam Adam Kuban was, was um, the editor of that. And he was sort of curating news about pizza and um, was sharing people's photos that they would submit. It was called My Pie Monday. You could submit photos. And I actually, I did have a pizza that I submitted back in the day that made the cut on My Pie Monday that I think was like a, it was like a Mexican themed pizza that had avocado and a whole bunch of crazy <laughs> stuff on it. So that's pretty awesome. Um, but I was like really into making pizza at home. And I used to see this same guy in the comments over and over again, he was commenting on every post, Paulie G. And I was like, who is this guy? Like he just, he, he's like a serial commenter. And um, then Adam profiled him for um, Serious Eats and Polly did like a tasting in his backyard. He had built a wood burning oven in his backyard and Adam came out to Jersey to Polly's house and tasted his pizza. And then they said in the article that he was going to be opening up his own pizzeria in Greenpoint. So when he first opened the pizzeria in 2010, I went down there to try his, his pizza and he has a beautiful Stefano Ferrara wood burning oven that was brought over from Naples on a container ship. And wow. so I had all these questions for him. He came by my table like he does pretty much everybody who eats at Polly G's. They've had Polly come by the table. And so he came by and we were chatting about his dough recipe. And I was asking him all these questions about the oven and his dough and processes. And at the end of the conversation, he was like, look, you, you seem like you're really into making pizza. Would you like to become an apprentice here? And, um, you know, at that time I had kind of made a mess of my own kitchen and I had flour everywhere and all this stuff. And so I was like, you know what, it's probably time to like take this hobby out of the house. And really, if you're trying to learn how to stretch dough, if you're making pizza at home, it's very difficult because you're only going to have like, you know, a couple of dough balls. But if you get into a pizzeria, you can just kind of stretch over and over and over again and get the muscle memory up. And mm. so I'd go in and after my day job, I was working in Manhattan at a booking agency as an assistant to a booking agent. And I hated my job. And um, I started apprenticing at Pollock G's and I would go in at night and practice stretching dough. And eventually I got fast enough stretching dough that he put me on a dinner shift and um, I started working there making pizzas. And then one day I brought in a bottle of my honey for, for Polly to try and it had no packaging on it at that point. And uh, he liked it and asked me if I could make it for the restaurant. So I started making it one gallon at a time wow. for the restaurant and they, they added <laughs> to the menu and then, you know, people were tasting it on the pizzas and I could see the reactions to it. Cause at Polly G's, the oven is open to the floor of the, the restaurant. So they, right. they call it the pizza theater. So you could see people when you're up there making pizzas, you could see people tasting the honey. Pizza theater. And the vivid. Yeah. You see them, you, they can awesome. watch you and you can watch them. And so I could see people tasting it and they could 
interact with me and I got all this great feedback. So like eventually people were asking me where they could buy it and it just got crazier and crazier. And then eventually I was like, all right, I got to start bottling this stuff and selling it. So at first I was selling unmarked containers, like little (laughs) pint containers. But then eventually um, my best friend from childhood who I moved to New York with, he is a graphic designer and he designed the first packaging and uh, the first bottles were sold off the bar at Poly G's in November of 2010. That's incredible. And was it at the time still called Mike's Hot Honey? That's kind of what you were telling the customers at Poly G's. Everyone knew that that's what they were buying. Yeah. Yeah. It's always been Mike's Hot Honey. I mean, it's been been Mike's Hot Honey since 2004. And, you know, those first bottles were sold in in like winter of 2010. And then um, Adam actually came into Poly G's when I was bartending one day because I used to make pizzas but I would also tend bar there. And I had just started selling bottles off the bar and he came up to me one day and he's like, look, I'm going to write an article about this stuff and put it on serious seats. <laughs> and he was like, are you ready for that? And I was like, I didn't really think about it. I was like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, sure. So I, I had a very rudimentary website set up. I think I you could only pay via PayPal. And, um, but he put it on the internet. And then once it was online, that sort of like all of a sudden exposed the brand to all of these people. And that was really like the first month that I was bottling it. Wow. So then all of a sudden there were orders coming in and, and, um, you know, that was, that was really the, the spark for me. Yeah. That, that's kind of my next question, which is how do you go from starting to bottle it, selling some of them through apologies, but Really, how do you start spreading the word about the business? Were there any um, any moments that were where you're second guessing yourself, trying to figure out whether you know you're going to produce a bunch of it and then not enough people will buy it? How did you go from a really small operation selling bottles from a pizza shop to getting the word out there and then scaling the volume of the business in the customer base? Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky to have the benefit of the pizzeria poly G's as like a testing ground for the product. So, you know, I had already known from just reactions from my friends and family over the years. And then it just was confirmed after it was on the menu at poly G's and I could see night in and night out people having the same reaction to it. I knew that people loved what was in the bottle. So at that point it was like, all right, like I know I have something here. I just need to figure out the operations behind it to, to, to actually turn it into a business. And um, that was the hardest part for me was figuring out how to, scale up production. I mean, in the beginning, you mentioned it before, but for the first five years, I was a one-man operation and that, that includes production. So I was personally producing, bottling, capping, labeling every single bottle, driving around New York, making deliveries, dropping off packages at UPS, you know, pushing my laundry cart full of mail order packages to the <laughs> post office. Like I, I did everything myself um, in in the beginning. And uh, some of those early customers are still some of my best customers. So like those relationships, um, you know, because I was personally hand delivering the product, those relationships ended up being like really, really strong ones for the brand in the long run. Were you selling directly to the end consumer or were you only selling to pizza shops or restaurants that wanted to serve the product? Yeah. So it was a mix. I was selling gallons to a few local restaurants and different pizzerias that had started to find out about it. So I was shipping gallons for food service and I had the 12 ounce bottles for retail and I was doing mail order through my website. So people could order through the website and get it shipped anywhere in the country, mail order. And then I started to pick up retailers like independent specialty food shops, like, um, 
Murray's Cheese was one of the first places to carry it. Bedford Cheese Shop in Williamsburg. Lots of those like independent specialty mm. shops were early picking it up. I mean, that's where you're going to find the best products anyway. The most authentic, yeah. local. And honestly, like they didn't even care. I don't think I had product liability insurance. I didn't even have seals under my caps for a <laughs> while. Like it was like, they didn't even care. They were like, people want the products. Like we're just going to sell it. So, you know, it's shelf stable at room temperature. So, um, yeah, before I was even incorporated as a business, I was like, you know, figuring all that stuff out. And, and um, but I had an issue where, I couldn't figure out how to create a homogeneous infusion where, I, you know, I couldn't like the chili peppers would separate from the honey. And it was this problem that really plagued me because as the brand got more and more awareness and I started to get more press and people were finding out about it, everybody was asking for it, but I couldn't produce inventory in advance because I had to produce to order and then ship it out immediately because otherwise if the product sat, it would start to separate. And it was a problem that took me like three and a half years to solve. I could have used like an emulsifier, guar gum or xanthan gum to, mm. to do that. But I really wanted to figure out a way to do it without using any sort of emulsifier and keep the ingredients just completely 100% natural and pure. And that took a lot of R&D and visits to food scientists up and down the East Coast and experimenting. And then one day, I, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is where UMass is. One day I was back home visiting my family and it was like a Saturday afternoon and I walked over to the UMass food science department and I was just wandering the hallways, like looking for anybody I could talk to there. And I found this professor who was sitting in his office and he didn't solve the problem for me, but he gave me the clue that eventually unlocked large scale production. Yeah. Yep. And, and once I had that, it changed everything because I was able to start looking for co-packers and um, I didn't have to produce everything to order. And so I was looking for all these suppliers and I quickly discovered like condiment co-packers didn't work for my product because they didn't have the right filling equipment that was specific to honey. But I learned I needed to work with a honey specific um, bottling line. So I started reaching out to different honey packers and none of them would work with me because they were all concerned with cross-contamination. So they were running pure honey on their line. If they ran my product and cleaned the line, but there was a, a spot they missed, they could cross-contaminate a whole run of pure honey with chili peppers. So they're, to they're them, <laughs> I wasn't worth the risk, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Honey is mm-hmm. a, a very precious thing. So it just wasn't worth it for any of them. And it took me a long time. I was rejected by basically everybody. So it was very like discouraging for a while where I just like, I was in this pickle where like people wanted the product, but I couldn't produce enough. And I was really like, it was intense physical labor on my part to just try to keep up and solve these problems on the side. And then finally I found um, Styles Apiaries, which is an apiary from upstate New York. And Grant Styles, the owner of the apiary, he told me, he was like, you know, I don't know why anybody would want your product. This concept doesn't make any sense to me, but if you pay me, I'll help you figure <laughs> out how to produce it. So he, he was willing to work with me and we sort of, you know, MacGyvered this, the first production line and figured out how to do it at scale. And, uh, the first production line we built in his garage in New Jersey. And he told me that day, he was like, you know, this doesn't look like much back here, but I'm telling you, like, we can do a lot of volume out of this little production line. And, you know, a few years later, we had a national buy-in with Walmart 
Walmart and he was able to fulfill honey for 4,000 Walmart stores. Oh my God. Out of that garage. Unbelievable. So, you know, it was a, it was a crazy, it was a crazy roller coaster getting to that point. But, um, you know, now he's built out a brand new production line and, uh, it's, it's a few blocks from our original garage and we have multiple production lines running the product now. So it's, it's incredible. It's, um, it's pretty cool. We come along come a long way. So a lot of entrepreneurs, whether it's a pizza shop operator or in your case, you know, the, the entrepreneurial journey is a roller coaster, like this huge roller coaster, right? And, and the lows can be really low. And of course the highs are, are really rewarding and, and, and awesome. But in those moments where you find yourself almost at a dead end, like no one wants to produce this honey, people think you're con- contaminating their, their lines you're there's almost no other solution what kept you going why did you push so hard to try and find a solution well i mean i knew that people loved the product so that's that's what kept me going there was a demand for it the demand never went away mm. so it was really just figuring out how to how to supply the demand and you know that's kind of what kept me going and also like that was my livelihood i, I didn't really have a I didn't have a choice. Like I was making pizza and I was selling, selling honey. And that was like, you know, that's what I was doing to pay my rent in New York, which is not easy. So I, (laughs) you know, I had to keep on going. And, um, the physical labor was very grueling. That was like the, probably the most intense part of it. Cause honey is very heavy. You know, it's sticky. It can get kind of messy chili peppers, you know, especially when you're cleaning up at the end of the night after a bottling run, like you're, you know, the fumes get in the air. And in the early days, I was not hip to like, you know, masks and um, <laughs> goggles and stuff like that. So I, I was, you know, exposing myself to all of the chili pepper fumes and it was pretty intense for a while there. Uh, eventually I smartened up and started wearing masks and protective goggles after I got chili pepper in my eye. Oof. So <laughs> not, but, not, not a fun experience. Not, not fun, but yeah, it was just a lot of physical labor, but, but yeah, it was just the demand that kind of kept me going. Awesome. And then, so how do you go from, okay, you found, you found this producer partner who's going to help you mass produce the product. How do you end up at Walmart? What is that uh, journey like? But really, was there a moment where whether it was, you know, luck or you kept pushing for that relationship? How did you, how did you end up in 4,000 Walmarts? So year five, I had just figured out how to scale up production. I had opened my first Whole Foods store was third and third in Gowanus. So it was our first supermarket and I was still a one man operation. I went around to like each Whole Foods one by one and I had a free case of honey and I told the honey buyer, Hey, I know this is your section of the store. I've got a free case here. My product is approved in your system. If you give me one space on the shelf. I'll pack out the shelf right now with a free case and just give me a chance. And I went around and I opened up all the stores in New York City, all the Whole Foods stores in New York City doing that. So those were the first supermarkets. And then um, I met my business partner, Matt, um, or actually reconnected with my business partner, Matt. It was just a random thing where his wife was starting a PhD program at UMass Boston. And he knew that I was from Massachusetts. So when they were moving to the East Coast, he reached out to me and I told them I was in New York and they eventually came down to the city for a weekend and I brought them to Poly G's and, you know, shared my story with them and told Matt everything that I was doing with the honey. And a week later he hit me up and he was like, Hey, you know, I was really excited to hear about your new 
business. And at the time he was looking to get out of his corporate job and into a startup. And he had uh, gone to business school at um, Kellogg in Chicago and um, had worked as a brand manager at Wrigley. And his wife was was uh, doing a PhD in business. So Matt had a lot of the, the skills that, that I didn't have. And, you know, we sort of had complementary skill sets. So he came in and was able to help me work out the operations, the finance side of the business, and really helped groom the business to, to scale. So eventually, you know, we were able to start working with distributors and we had some early distribution, like we were nationwide with Sonoma and West Elm. We started to pick up more distribution at retail with some small supermarket chains. And eventually in the seventh year business, we took on our, our first round of, of investment. And that allowed us to start building out our team and hiring some really talented people. And Cheryl, who heads up our, our retail team, she had a lot of experience working uh, with Walmart, selling into Walmart for Procter & Gamble. And uh, we originally just hired her as a, as a consultant to help us, but we quickly saw that she was a true professional. I mean, we were amateurs in that space. We really didn't know what we were doing in terms of <laughs> large-scale retail rollouts. Um, and she just came with, with many years of experience and was able to help us prepare for a rollout of that size. And then eventually, you know, it really was just plugging away, growing brand through our food service partnerships, more and more pizzerias taking the product, um, more press. It's sort of this flywheel of different channels, digital, retail, food service, and they all impact each other. And eventually, you know, it got to the point where Walmart noticed us. And I think with Walmart, especially the honey buyer recognized that we were incremental to the honey set. So interesting. if they have 50 honey products that are pure honeys on the shelf and they take one of those down and replace it with our product, we're bringing in consumers from the condiment space, from the hot sauce space that weren't previously shopping in the honey aisle. And it's not you're not cannibalizing the sales of pure honey. So Walmart buyers are very savvy and, you know, they, they recognize that and, and gave us, gave us some space on the shelf. Amazing. And as you scaled, you mentioned hiring really smart, great people. Uh, any advice to operators, entrepreneurs on how to hire the right people, especially as you scale the business? Yeah. I mean, in our case, I'm not sure how much this would apply to a pizzeria because a lot of our team works remotely, but the way we went about hiring is really just finding great people, finding really smart, talented people and offering maximum flexibility because we knew we couldn't really compete with like some of the big corporate businesses out there. Um, so we had to find other ways to, to make ourselves attractive. And, you know, for some of our staff, they had families and, and kids and they didn't want to have to commute or travel. And so we were like, sure, you know, you can work remotely. You can have maximum flexibility. You can take vacations when you want to take vacations. And we tried to you know, be competitive in that way. And we're able to hire some great talent by just being flexible with people. And this is before, before COVID. This is before COVID. Yeah. yeah. Before so it became, COVID hit, we were, you know, the normal. <laughs> yeah. We were already operating remotely. I mean, we have, uh, we have some staff in New York, but the majority of our team is, is remote. Mm. And so I think, yeah, just offering flexibility and looking for great people who shared our values. And that was important. And just looking for for smart people. I mean, we didn't get too acute with like 
only hiring people who had business, uh, honey business experience. We were, we were just looking for smart people in general. And I think anybody um, with a good head on their shoulders can really figure out this business. Amazing. And something I wanted to ask, Mike's Hot Honey, is it exclusively made for pizza? What are some other applications and maybe some really unique ways that people have applied and consumed Mike's Hot Honey? Yeah. So, I mean, initially I thought it was just going to be a pizza condiment and that was like my sort of narrow vision for the product. Um, but then once it got into the hands of other people, they started using it on all different things. So outside of pizza, chicken is very popular, fried chicken, chicken wings, chicken sandwiches. Oh man. Mixed into cocktails. <laughs> um, yep. there's a, there are a lot of great cocktails that are made with the product now. Really in a cocktail, just honey yeah. drizzled. So usually in a cocktail, if it's a cold cocktail, you, you want to shake pretty vigorously to break down the honey, or you can make a simple syrup, you know, like one part water mm -hmm. to one part honey to really mix the, the honey into the cocktail. You also see people using it to rim the glass for a margarita, but, but yeah, cocktails are pretty popular. Pizza, chicken cocktails, cheese and charcuterie. Ice cream is becoming more and more popular. It's like <laughs> a really unique flavor experience for people because they've never really had something hot on their ice cream. But it actually goes really well with like vanilla ice cream or butter pecan. And that goes all the way back to Polly G's. That was on the original menu. Polly G's had the Mike's Honey. It still does. It has the Mike's Honey Sunday, which is... Just vanilla ice cream with candy pecans and a drizzle of, of, of Mike's Hot Honey. I'm, get, I'm getting so, hungry. I think it's important um, to zoom in on this topic because, look, I consume the product all the time. Uh, when you say, hey, people are not used to having something hot on ice cream, I think people's expectation in their mind that they haven't tried it is maybe hot sauce type of flavor. And that's not what this is. How would you define the taste of Mike's Hot Honey? Because I, I don't know that I would say it's as spicy as like hot sauce, but it is hot. It's just not, I don't know how to explain it. Do you know how to explain it? Yeah. So Mike's Hot Honey is truly an infused honey. It's mm. not a honey-based sauce. It's an infused honey, meaning like the product is honey infused with the flavor and the heat of chili peppers. It's the consistency of honey. It's the viscosity of honey. So, you know, different chili peppers hit you on different parts of your palate, but the chili pepper we use in our original flavor hits you on the back of your palate. So when you, when you taste the honey, usually you, you'll taste the sweetness and the floral notes of the honey up front. And there's like a one second delay. And then the heat kicks in on the back of your palate. So a lot of people, when they taste it, they go, hmm, this isn't that hot. And then they go, ah, there it is. You right. know, and they, they, feel, they feel the heat come in on a little bit of a delay. The extra hot flavor that we have now is, is made with a different chili pepper. And it's more of a front of the palate heat that really just cuts through like fattier foods, fat absorbs heat. So like if you're, if you're looking for the heat to cut through on something that's like a lot heavier, our extra hot, um, our extra hot flavor is, is probably a better option, but yeah, it's, it's, that's how I describe it. It kind of has that one, two, uh, punch because it's, it's sweetness and floral notes up front and then heat in the back. Great way to explain it. That definitely rings a bell. <laughs> what is next? I mean, let's fast forward five years from now. What's, um, what's the vision for Mike's Hot Honey? Where do you see this thing going? Well, people are constantly asking like, when are you going to come out with a new flavor? Um, you know, what are the new products? And one thing that we've really tried to do with our brand is, is, is focus on our core. Um, we think that that is, a, a way to build a really strong brand. And so um, we're all about reinforcing the core. So it's making the product available in new pack sizes for new usage occasions. I mean, now we've got, you know, 
single serving squeeze packets, dip cups, mini jars, 10 ounce bottles, 12 ounce bottles, 24 ounce bottles for food service, gallon jugs. We do totes for large scale food service applications. But the brand is also extending into different um, categories through brand collaboration. So for example, we just did a beer with Six Point where they made a beer with Mike's Out Honey. Completely new category for us. There's, um, we've got a few other products in the pipeline that are collaborations with other um, CPG companies that use the product uh, as an ingredient. So um, we're extending into different parts of the store through those collaborations. But on our, you know, our own plate, it's really about creating new pack sizes for new use occasions and new price points that sort of make the product accessible, no matter what the application, no matter what the retailer looks like, no matter what the restaurant looks like, it's for everyone. It's from the guy who just wants to drizzle it on his chicken tenders at home to the Michelin star chef that's using it in a fancy cocktail and everything in between. And it's for people who are shopping at Walmart and people who are shopping at Maurice Cheese and everything in between. So it's really like we're trying to just make the product as accessible to as many different people as possible. That's incredible. And if we shift our focus to the pizza shop, what are some success stories of shop owners adopting Mike's Hot Honey? One of my favorite shop owners, uh, Anthony from Nino's Pizza in Hillsdale, New Jersey, uh, is uh, is obviously an avid supporter, but also the customers are really seeking Mike's Hot Honey. But what are some some great examples and case studies where pizza shops are finding success with Mike's Hot Honey? Well, the original pizza that featured Mike's Hot Honey at Poly G's is called the Hellboy. It's a soprasada picante from Sala Maria Villese. And then at Poly G's Slice Shop, the Hellboy there is, is made with cup and char pepperoni and Mike's Honey. And that really has become the pairing that we've seen customers, fans, people go crazy for over and over again. It, we, we know that the intersection of cup and char pepperoni with Mike's Honey is a winning combo. It's the saltiness of that pepperoni the way the honey nestles in the cups um, and mixes with the, the fat yeah. from the pepperoni. There's something magical about that. And we've just seen partner after partner have success with that combination because it's accessible to people, but it's also like a really new dynamic flavor that most people have never experienced. So yeah, cup and jar pep with Mike's out honey. We've just seen so many shops have success with that. Um, I was just uh, recently, I was down at uh, Lucia. It's a new pizzeria on Avenue X in South Brooklyn. And they did a spin on that where they're using, um, they're they're kicking it up even further. They're using like uh, these pickled chili peppers on the pie with the cup and char pep and the hot honey. And they're crushing it with that slice. And then on our end, we're sort of figuring out how to make the product a little bit more visible within those those pizzerias and help the pizzerias sell the product more. So now we have 12 ounce displays for our bottles. So just like I was selling bottles off the bar at Poly G's, we're seeing a lot of pizzerias have success selling bottles off the counter right at checkout. You know, they can sell them for $12 a pop. It's it's just a new stream of revenue that um, a lot of shops didn't have. And I think during the pandemic, we saw a lot of restaurants start to open up little retail sections of their space to try to drive new revenue. Um, but yes, we have retail counter displays. We have displays for our dip cups. 
We're also following the sort of beer liquor company model in terms of signage, like the way, same way a beer company would have signage in bars. Mm-hmm. We're doing the same thing with pizzerias where we got a whole suite of signage, whether it's neon signs, backlit LED signs, beveled metal tin signs, static clings, felt pennants. Like we're, we're trying to just create a, a really broad suite of signage so that when people come into a shop that's using the product, they see that the product is there and then they're ordering it as an add-on on their pie or, or you know, even buying a bottle if, if the shop is retailing. Incredible. And I'm looking forward to hopefully building on our our relationship and, and try and find ways to introduce Mike's Hot Honey to pizza shops nationwide through, uh, through the Slice platform. But you know, the last question I have for you from a pizza operator, you know, you worked at a pizza shop, you, you interact with pizza shop owners. What is one piece of advice you'd give to a pizza shop operator that you believe would help them improve their business in, in some way, shape or form? The pizza shops that stand out, what do you think is their, what do you think are their ingredients? Well, you just said it. I mean, it's, it's about ingredients. I think that's a big part of it. It's, it's, uh, you know, finding the best ingredients and obviously people are price sensitive. So it's not like you, you have to find the best ingredients within reason, within, you know, your, your price range, but, you know, being very intentional about the ingredients that you source and then really practicing your technique and not, not getting complacent about the dough. You know, I think there's, there's always room to get better. And, um, you know, I see a lot of people who, who aren't complacent and, if you go back and taste their pizza over the years, it just gets better and better over time. And, and so like, I think there are a lot of places, obviously like there are places that are steeped in history where they've been doing it the same way for 50 years. And I'm not saying you should ever change what you've been doing if that's working for you. But I do think like, you know, maintaining a certain level of curiosity and, and, and trying to continue to learn new techniques and, and really work on your dough. I think that's, that's really important. I would also say, um, Branding is really important. And I mean, I, I've, I've experienced that personally myself. I mean, I think like, for example, when, when we launched our, our new packaging, um, which we, we redid our packaging in 2015, we had a mock grocery shelf where we had all of the products that um, you would have on the shelf next to us at a grocery store. We had those products there and we'd put up a a test of our packaging on the shelf and step back and from eight feet away, take a look and, you know, ask ourselves, are we the best looking product in the set? Can you identify what it is? You know, is it memorable? Does it look beautiful? And we just iterated over and over again. So we felt like we were in, in the best possible place. And I think there are a lot of places that don't spend enough time on design. Like I think if, if you invest in great signage, that's going to go a long way. I mean, that's not necessarily, you know, that's obviously not going to change what your pizza tastes like, but you might not get people walking in your shop unless they see a great looking sign. So I think like, I think investing in great design work and great signage goes a long way with pizzerias. And I think I see a lot of places that I think would do a lot better if they had invested more in their signage and their design. In their presence, and it's yeah. not it's not easy. It's not easy because I think like you guys have obviously helped a lot with that with with some of the programs you you've run helping pizzerias. But it's it's not easy. It's it's expensive. But you know even if even if it's you know talking to your friend who's a graphic designer and help, having them build out the design work for your your menu, your signage outside the restaurant, um, I think that'll go a long way. Awesome. That's great advice. Pretty consistent with what what we hear from from others. And, you know, I would take it a step further, which is both your signage and your presence physically. 
-hmm. But what I try and stress is equal importance, if not in some cases, more importance, more weight to your presence and consistency of your brand online, uh, which is where we really try and help. But this has been awesome. Wishing you continued success and uh, looking forward to, to strengthening our relationship as well. Likewise, Alir. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, guys. 